Welcome, everybody, to the Hanging Halloween episode of 23. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, everybody's doing good and it's in good spirits. Now, let's get on with the spooky stories. This first story is titled 4.58 a.m. And it was written by Yuki. Larson woke up startled in the middle of the night. He clutched his chest with his tiny hand, trying to dull the sharp pain in his heart. As he grasped for air, he desperately tried to remember what his nightmare had been all about. He looked over at his alarm clock and discovered that it was 4.58 a.m. He began sobbing and thought about calling out for his mom to come calm him down but he couldn't bring himself to make a sound. That's when he realized that he was not the source of the sniffing and heavy breathing. Larson slowly turned his head and saw the silhouette of a grown man sitting in a small puddle of his own blood. The weeping man was not even three feet from his bedside. Hello, sir, sir, my name is Larson. Are you okay? The little boy stammered, almost completely hoarse with fear. The man shook his head slowly and began to cry even harder. Well, what, what's the matter? Larson asked, feeling concerned, not only for his own safety, but that of the man as well. Without turning to face the boy, the man slowly lifted his right arm for Larson to see. In the dim light coming from his Spider-Man nightlight, Narson could see not only was the man's arm bent at an unnatural angle, but the bone had punctured through the skin. Oh my gosh, you need to get to the hospital. Larson explained. Let, let me go get my mom and dad can drive you. That won't be necessary. An androgynous voice replied. For a second, Larson was confused whether this figure was a man or a woman with short hair. So he decided to continue thinking of the figure as a man. No, please, let me get him. Larson said as he began to get out of bed. You'll feel much better. Suddenly, the man's arm snapped back into place with a nauseating crunch. As the man's arm was miraculously healed, Larson was flung back onto the bed. He lay flat on his back and struggled to get up, but he couldn't move a single muscle. The man slowly stood up and turned towards the poor, frightened child as he struggled with all of his might to move even a finger. He was still covered in shadow, but Larson could see and hear the blood dripping off the man into the puddle he stood in. What's happening? Larson cried, fearing for his life. Please let me go. I want my mommy! Oh, she wanna leave? Asked the deep, gruff, growling voice. Well, why didn't you just say so? The man began raising his left hand in the air. As he did, Larson began to rise as well. With a quick motion, the man flung his right hand, and Larson went flying towards the door. He was hit with a sickening thud before he had even had time to recover. The man quickly raised his left hand and then dropped it to his side, causing Larson to fly to the ceiling 
and then fall quickly to the floor. The man then used his right hand to send Larson flying into the wall by his bed. It's all happening so fast that Larson barely had time to cry out in pain. He laid on his bed twitching and grasping for air. He cried silently as the blood trickled from his forehead into his eyes and his mouth. The pain was excruciating, almost to the point where Larson couldn't feel it. Almost. Why are you doing this to, this to me? Larson practically whispered. The man's laugh was so loud that Larson was sure he'd be deaf by the end of it. The man took a few slow steps toward Larson's bed. In doing so, he entered the light emitting from the Spider-Man nightlight. As Larson stared at the man's face, he noticed something was off about it. Slowly, he realized what the problem was. The man's face was not his own. It was somebody else's. The man's hair and ears were his own, but his actual face was held onto his head with the string that went across the back of his head. Larson wanted to vomit at the sight of the bleeding slab of skin, at the dark, empty eye holes, his sunken nose and chapped lips. The man's shoulders bounced as he chuckled silently to himself. And without a word, the man reached behind his back and his hand returned with a long, glistening, razor-sharp knife. Larson began sulking in that moment because he knew he was going to die. But there was no other outcome other than his death. No one was coming to save him, and he definitely wasn't going to save himself. The man started to shake. Subtly at first, then almost as if he was having a seizure. It was an unbearable cracking sound and suddenly his head was facing the opposite direction. His arms and legs then extended outwards an extra two feet as he did sort of a backbend to support himself on his hands and feet. Larson screamed at the top of his lungs, absolutely terrified. Shut your fucking mouth! The man bellowed and Larson immediately went mute. The man then turned with an amazing amount of speed and made his way towards Larson's bed, his arms and legs bending at awkward and horrific angles. The man's face was not only inches from Larson's snot and tear-smeared face. Wanna see something, something amazing? The androgynous voice said. The man quickly cut the string wrapped around his head with his knife causing the face to fall directly onto Larson's. Larson tried to scream, but he was still mute and paralyzed. The man then slowly removed the face from off of Larson, but he kept his eyes closed out of fear. Open your eyes, kid, the man commanded. Larson opened his eyes against his will and was so shocked he probably couldn't have screamed even if he wanted to. Underneath the man's makeshift mask, was just skin and nothing else. The man had absolutely no eyes, nose or mouth. He was completely faceless. The man laughed at how speechless Larson was. You asked me earlier why I was doing this to you. Larson heard the androgynous voice say. The man raised his knife, but instead of using it on Larson, he stuck it into his own head. The man then proceeded to cut a slit where his mouth would be. 
Blood poured out of the gash and all over Larson's face. It filled his eyes and nostrils, and he was sure he would drown. Right when his lungs began to burn with the need for oxygen, the man wiped most of the blood off of him. The man then slowly leaned forward until Larson could feel his cold breath against his skin. It's because the hearts of pure children are my favorite. The man whispered with his new mouth. Larson then felt the blade enter his chest. His body felt ice cold as his blood began to stain his bed sheets. His vision began to blur, and he lost all feeling to his entire body. Right before he died, he heard a woman say, See you soon, Larson. Larson woke up startled in the middle of the night. He clutched his chest with his tiny hand, trying to dull the sharp pain in his heart. As he gasped for air, he desperately tried to remember what his nightmare had been about. He looked over at his alarm clock and discovered it was 4.58 a.m. He began sobbing and thought about calling out for his mom to come calm him down, but couldn't bring himself to make a sound. That's when he realized he was not the source of the sniffling and heavy breathing. Larson slowly turned his head and saw the silhouette of a grown man sitting in a puddle of his own blood. The weeping man was not even three feet from the side of his bed. Sounds like somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> this next story is titled Call Me by Wayward Wanderer. When I was 14 years old, I received my first cell phone. It was one of those earlier models of phone, small, basic, and a burner. When I was in high school, all the cell phones were only able to make and receive phone calls and text messages. There weren't cameras or apps or even caller ID built into the phones. All of the older technology now seems so simple and innocent in comparison to today's models. I use my phone pretty frequent, texting friends or calling home, and had become very familiar with the incoming numbers that were displayed on my phone's screen. After about six months, I received a call from a number I didn't recognize. I ignored it, figuring it was a wrong number, and I didn't think any more of it. The next day, the same unknown number called me again, just as before I ignored the call. The third day, the same number called me again. This time I answered quickly with the cliche, wrong number, and hung up the phone. A few seconds later, I received a text from whoever it was, whoever kept calling me. The text simply read, call me. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who this person was, why they wanted to talk to me, or how they even got my phone number. For months, I continued to ignore the incoming texts that appeared daily. Each text from the same number with the same message, call me. Unable to stand the bizarre messages, I decided to trace the number and finally identified the person who was harassing me. After a few minutes on the internet, I was able to trace the number to an exact location in the town. I arrived at the location only to discover that the number was for a public payphone. 
I didn't want to give up the search so quickly, so I chose to observe the phone for a while and see if anyone stopped by. I wasted my day watching the phone and seeing absolutely no one even approach the phone. I turned to leave when I received another text. The same text I had for so many weeks. Call me. It was then I realized the text cannot be sent from payphones or only other cell phones. I turned around and saw a strange man with a red hoodie pulled up so I couldn't see his face. He was holding a phone in his hand and he waved at me with the other. I was petrified as my mind began racing with questions. Who was this man? Where did he come from? Why was he calling me? How long had he been standing there? Was he there the whole time? Has he been watching me? Too scared to confront the man, I turned and ran as fast as I could for home. I told my older brother what happened and he wanted me to take him to the phone. We got into his car and I pointed out the phone on the corner. We got out of the car together. He a baseball bat in his hands in case anyone tried to mess with us. We started checking the payphone and we found that the phone had been tampered with and concluded the man in red had manipulated the wires so it looked as though I was receiving phone calls from a payphone instead of his actual phone. Scratched in the side of the payphone were the words, call me. Needless to say, I got rid of my phone and bought a new phone with a new number and life returned to normal for a while after that. But two months later, I received another strange text. This time, the text came from my old number and stated, I bought a new phone too. I got rid of the phone and choose to never buy or use one again. Soon, someone began calling my house number and leaving the same message in a hoarse, raspy voice. Call me. I now live without any phone in my life whatsoever. I never called the man, but that never stopped him from calling me or my family. Maybe it was Rebecca Black. Call me. Maybe. <laughs>This next story is titled, Get in the Bed, and it was written by Vault 40. Often when my wife and I go to bed at night, our dog ends up sharing the bed with us as well. He is a black dog that weighs about 100 pounds, so you can imagine that he takes up a good portion of the bed at night when he decides that he wants to sleep with us. Since we have black sheets, he tends to blend in with the bed, making it hard to tell if he sneaks up there before us. Most nights, after I turn off the lights and TV, I'm lying there in the dark. I can hear my dog get off of the floor as he props his heavy head on the foot of our bed. He eagerly awaits the invitation to come up into the bed with us and claim a spot. I can see the glimmer of his eyes in the moonlight from outside our windows as it hits them. Normally I will instinctively pat the bed and tell him to come on and get in the bed without even looking around at him. On this particular night, my wife was out of town and it was just me and the dog hanging out. After staying up late and watching a movie, I decided that it was time for bed. I went through my normal routine of showering while my dog lay on the bed trying to get some sleep ahead of me.
Since it was late, I never really paid attention to what was going on. I got out of the shower, turned out the lights, and never even turned on the TV. I was completely exhausted, just wanting to get some sleep. Not long after my head hit the pillow, I heard the normal shifting sound coming from the floor, meaning that my dog was about to ask permission to come to bed. I was hoping that he would since I was alone in the bed and I'm not used to sleeping in an empty bed. I felt the heavy weight as his head hit the foot of our bed and looked up to see that light glimmering off of those eager eyes again. I reached out and patted the bed with my hand to show him that it was okay getting up onto the bed and said, come on boy, get in the bed. As soon as I said that, I heard my dog lift his head and growl towards the foot of our bed. The noise that it made back at my dog is a sound that I wish I could never have to hear ever again. Of course, these are likely the last sounds I will ever hear. As I lie here in terror, I can see those eager, hungry eyes crawling towards me. Maybe next time he won't be a bad boy. <laughs> This next story is titled The Detective by Silent Madness. James Nichols was a detective in mid-New Jersey. He lived with his wife and two kids and was a happy man, aside from his insomnia and occasional sleepwalking. Just part of the job, he guessed. He had heard stories, things like PTSD from certain cases, generally the more traumatic ones, obviously. With all these tales of people that had had their psyches ruined for life, he was thankful and guessed he got off easy. One night, as he was going to sleep, he went and took the new prescription sleep medication that the doctor had given him to see if it would help. He shook out two pills, one less than the proper dosage because he didn't trust the medicine quite yet. He found that he fell asleep quite quickly and opened his eyes in his own bed and felt rested and alert. He went to work and had one of the best days he had had in years, solely because he didn't have to drink a gallon of coffee just to start on this new case. Today was a more exciting one. A 12-year-old girl was found dead in her bedroom at 8.30 that morning. The mother had become worried that she had not come down for breakfast, so she went to check on her. When he arrived at the house, he climbed out of the cramped squad car, his examination bag taking up more space than him in the seat. He entered the house after he was invited in by the mother and offered his condolences, skulking up the stairs. Solemn work, but it paid well. James found the girl in her bed her throat slit from ear to ear. Jesus Christ! He asked the CSI officials to comb the room for evidence while he asked the mother some questions. She was cooperative, although distraught, which is understandable considering the circumstances. Was there anyone that would want to hurt her? Any enemies? Anyone that might want to get to you through her? Nobody. He asked her a few more questions and finished with the final one that was often the least helpful. 
Is there any other information you can give us that might help with this investigation? Well, she has a golden heart-shaped locket that she never takes off, not even asleep. She wasn't wearing it when I found her, and I couldn't find it in the room anywhere, said the mother. Surprisingly, she had given James a piece of information that could turn into an actual lead. The CSI examiners came up with not a single strand of evidence. Nothing. On his final scrutiny of the house, he found that the window to the room had been opened from the outside, and there were vines hanging from the sill. He decided that he had two things to look for, a golden locket and stained clothing from climbing up the vines to the window. He worked for days, weeks, trying the hardest he could to find the killer of the poor girl. Nothing pointed anywhere. He never could find a stained piece of clothing or, or a golden locket. Someone could have found it on the street. Or maybe there were siblings or sightings. But he couldn't find anyone that had seen it or any suspicious activity in that neighborhood that night. The case was finally closed and no leads ever came up. The family was compensated for their loss of their youngest of three daughters and the detective moved on to his next case. Armed robbery at a gas station next to the highway. Easy. He had stopped taking the medication because of the murder. He had been working all night on the case. He solved the armed robbery case in a matter of hours and the suspect was arrested that same day. That day he came home intending to take the medication once more so he could finally get some sleep. His kids were already in bed when he came home, as their bedtime was 8, and he usually got home around 10.30. He couldn't find his slippers, the comfortable ones he usually kept by his bed, so he decided to see if they were in his closet. He found them, but when he looked in his closet, he saw that he had left some clothing on the floor. Damn it! It was just a white t-shirt. He picked it up, intending to fold it thinking about how good he was going to sleep again with that new medication. The last time he had taken it was the night before that extremely exciting case popped up. Maybe these pills were good luck or something. As he picked up the shirt, something fell out. The shirt had grass stains, he saw now. He looked on the floor for what had fallen out, and he picked it up. It was a golden, heart-shaped locket. Guess doctors will prescribe anything these days. <laughs> this final story is titled Antran, and it was written by Ehrlich Smash. The picture you're staring at was taken sometime in the 70s. It's the only remaining image I have left of my son and the artificial being known as Antran who we adopted into our family at the time. It was a warm summer back in the mid-70s. I was driving home from my logging company after a long shift when I had to make a stop at the local garbage tip to drop off some old desks my mother had given us. Something caught the corner of my eye as I bent down, and upon closer inspection, was shocked to see what I originally thought was a doll. 
a plastic outer shell with metal limbs. And more shockingly, a humanoid face with cold, dark eyes. I'll be honest to say I was curious at the time and incredibly impressed with the worksmanship. So I didn't think twice before placing it carefully along the back seat of my car and I took it home. My son's interest was almost as intense as mine and we bonded over the course of a few days, opening it up, looking at its circuitry and seeing if anything had been misplaced or broken. Eventually to our surprise, the being or android seemed to come to life. Its eyes displayed a somewhat sentient tint to them. Its limbs turned, its hands gripped, and after a few moments, it managed to stand up on its own accord. Needless to say, we were scared, yet fascinated. Who could have created such a wonderful and remarkable piece of work? I thought to myself. It wasn't until a few weeks later that I realized this wasn't a toy or a doll. It showed incredible signs of intelligence and thinking ability. It learned to do everyday things such as taking out the trash, playing with my son's toys. He even had a favorite, a small red car that he'd drive alongside the kitchen counters. It learned to mimic our ways, trying to eat from a fork despite not having a digestive system, moving its mouth despite lacking the ability to speak. I knew this was something else, perhaps a military piece of hardware or a private project. I knew I should have handed him in, but when I watched my boy play with it so happily, his face lit up, I couldn't do it. He's always been so lonely. This was one of his only friends. What kind of father would I be to deny him the right of happiness? It couldn't hurt to allow him to keep it for a while. We named him Antran which was the print in capitals written in small font across his back. A few months passed quickly and family life seemed to be improving. He was one of us. My son's grades improved, his mood improved, everything was getting better. Until one evening in July, I was sitting in my armchair with a beer watching television. My boy and Antran had knelt down on the rug play fighting with one another, as boys do, when suddenly my attention was drawn to a loud gasp and I looked down and saw my child gripping his arm. What's wrong, Adam? I asked. He rolled up his sleeve and on his arm was a large red mark covering his forearm. Antran pinched me, he replied in a shaky voice. The mark was indeed red. It would soon bruise into a swollen purple lump. My fatherly instincts took over me and, like a parent telling off a naughty child, I shouted at the android. Its cold, metallic face for a moment seemed to show genuine sadness and sorrow, as though it didn't know its own strength, as though it was sorry. Its lips moved, whether it was trying to muster up the words to apologize through language or Merely copying what I was doing, we will never know. Later on in the evening, I apologized for shouting, told it everything was okay and thought of nothing of it. A few weeks later, my child came into the room. It must have been early morning. My sleep was interrupted by a gentle creaking of my bedroom door.
he whispered. Yes, son, I replied. It keeps looking at me. What? What does? I asked him through tired eyes. Antran, he keeps looking at me at the end of my bed. His voice trembled fearful. I could tell something wasn't right. I noticed him rubbing his other arm and immediately called him over. Pulling up his sleeve, my heart sank. More bruises. Must have been four, five, all the way up his small arms. Take off your shirt, Adam. I was trying to keep calm. I could feel a cocktail of emotions rising within me. Panic, fear, anger. He took off his shirt. As the waist pulled over his small head, my heart sunk even further, and my eyes welled up. Before me, my son stood, his small frame coated in bruises, different sizes, different shades of browns and purples. Immediately I got up and stormed to Adam's room. Nothing. I shouted at the top of my lungs for the beam. Looking under the bed, out the closed bedroom window, nothing. Suddenly a loud knock from above us, then hard footsteps. It's in the loft, I whispered, my eyes to the heavens. As I paced down the corridor, I noticed the walls on either side of me were coated in scratches, all the way up to the now swinging piece of string that leads to the loft door. Slowly, I pulled it open, telling my scared son to stay where he was. The ladder fell down, and I climbed up. Taking a hold of the light we left on the side of the opening, I turned it on, only to find the small window we have in there to be smashed. It had escaped. Immediately, I considered calling the emergency services. But who's going to believe me? A sentient metallic being hurting my child? They'll take one look at the bruises and they'd have me locked up for abuse. I had no choice but to keep quiet. Weeks, then months passed. Every time we went outside, we noticed ever-increasing signs of Antran's presence. The familiar scratch marks alongside the breaking of my home. Plants being disturbed. Patches of mud leading up to the window. I feared for my son taking him to and from school, never letting him out of my sight. What had caused this sudden hostility towards us? Had we done it wrong? Was it my shouting? I found myself speaking out loud in the evenings, apologizing to the walls, to an empty room in hopes Amtran would hear, hoping he would stop taunting, the endless stalking, but my attempts were in vain. If I had known what would come, I wouldn't have slept that night. My sleep was once disturbed again, though this time by a blood-curdling scream. My eyes darted open, and immediately, almost as a natural instinct, I rushed to my son's room. It was too late. The room had been turned upside down. Everything was on the floor. The bed sheets ripped, and his window smashed. I burst into tears, screaming at the top of my lungs for my son back. I called the police, telling them my son had been kidnapped. They asked if I had seen the culprit. 
I lied and said I hadn't, hoping the images of my son would be enough, like they'd believe that the doll was sentient, harmful. For the next few days, I cried myself to sleep, sobbing like a child. Life wasn't worth living anymore. I wish I had never found that thing. I betrayed my son's trust in me as a father to protect him, and now I pay the price. It was a September dawn, as I sat in my armchair drinking, when I heard the pantry door creak open. Adam! I called, rushing to the kitchen. Again, nothing. Except there on the kitchen counter, Antran's favorite red toy car. I think that red car must have been a Mazda. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Hopefully that was scary enough for you. <laughs> As always, I'm your boy Desecrator. Happy Halloween. Oh, wow.